Hey there, Vernacular Faithful! Redcoat here, and Sientier joins him. Today, we're going to be talking about the concept of transitions in video games. Specifically, we'll be digging into why they're used and how to use them effectively. Almost every game out there has at least one transition in it, be it going from the title screen to gameplay, or leaving play to a cutscene. But before we can delve into why transitions are used or how to use them, we need to know what they are. I actually just used a transition there, a verbal one, to change who is speaking while continuing the thought. This is what transitions are, a way of changing things, in this case, of transitioning from one speaker to another. In games, they can be used to change states, such as bringing up a pause menu, going from a title screen to a main menu, or from a main menu to gameplay. It can also include concepts like going from one level to the next, or from one game world region to another. Sometimes transitions are done poorly, and at other times they are done well. And there are lots of different types of ways of transitioning, and those different ways work well for different things, but more on that later. So why are transitions important in games? The answer to that is something that is applicable to many of the creative arts. When it comes to the arts in general, transitions act as a way of controlling the audience's consumption of the piece, doing a great deal to influence how the piece in question is experienced. The most commonly experienced example of this is the cut in movies, where a particular scene transitions into another telling a story in the process because the ordering of the two scenes implies a causal relationship, and the nature of the transition used influences how the audience perceives that relationship. In other words, a scene showing a man in a leg cast, followed by a hard cut that brings us immediately to a car crash, implies that these events are happening at roughly the same time, but may not actually be related. However, that same scene of a man in a leg cast followed by a ripple effect and a dreamy musical cue as we transition to the scene of the crash implies that the crash happened in the past and caused the man's broken leg. This is just one of many ways that transitions occur in the arts at large. So again, what does this have to do with games? Games have many causes to need to transition, and it is important that this is done in a way that isn't jarring or a cause for concern. In the earlier days of gaming, transitions were primarily used to get the player through menus, present victory, or declare defeat. For games, I think it is useful to think of any non-cutscene time in which the player doesn't have control as a form of transition. So, for example, in Super Mario Bros., there is a screen at the start of each stage that presents what world number it is, how many extra lives you have, etc. This screen transitions you into the level, putting you in the mindset for it. There's also the audio cue and pausing that happens on the loss of a life to prepare the player for the level to restart. While these sorts of transitions are still used, there is another enormous reason for transitions in games today. Data management. Digital devices only have so much available memory, and game world data, geometry, AI units, textures, etc. take up space in that memory. This means you can only have so much of the game world in memory at a time. This means that data management, making sure you have space for the part of the game world you need right now, has a big impact on how games transition. The most obvious impacts are different levels, but there are other things as well, such as narrow, winding corridors or elevators. There are basically two ways to manage game world memory. You can load all of a portion of the world at once, then dump it during some sort of cut transition, such as a loading screen, then load in the next chunk, for something we'll call chunked data loading. Alternatively, you can get rid of portions of the world that the player isn't using to bring in portions of the world that you think the player will need soon. We call this streaming data loading. This is where the narrow corridors, slowed open doors, and elevators come into play. These structures don't need very much game world to be loaded for the player to interact with them, and because you can only really travel through them in a specific way, the programmers can make a really good guess about what part of the level to get rid of and which part to load. That said, technical reasons aren't the only cause for transitions to be used in games, 
as they affect much of the player's experience in ways that are practical to the Narvazod of the piece that don't necessarily arise from technical limitations. Transitions can be used to manage the pace of the experience for the player, utilizing stylistic flourishes to imply when the player is going to be called into action and how. The simplest example is at the start of any stage in Mega Man X, where a fade-in is used in tandem with that stage's music playing, and the text ready being presented to the player for a brief moment before dropping Mega Man into the scene and granting the player control. As you may have surmised, this was used primarily to take the player out of the contemplative space of play that happens on the menu screen and into the reflexive pace of play that happens in a stage. In doing so, it gives the player important information about where their avatar's starting position on the screen is. But beyond that, there is the concept of increasing the impact of various events in a game. In Castlevania, Aria of Sorrow, when the player dies, the screen slowly fades to black until only the player character remains as he falls backwards with blood particles coming out of him. A transition from play to game over in this game would be far less poignant if these details were not used as the player wouldn't necessarily have the time to comprehend the fact that they had indeed just died, react emotionally to this fate, and then remember what it was that killed them. This brings us to the methods employed to do these transitions. These can be grouped into two categories, cut transitions and masked transitions. These are technical types of transitions and are used due to needs that arise from structural causes rather than artistic transitions that are often used for emotional or pacing reasons. Right. Cuts, for example, tend to arise from a more chunked method of data management, or from situations that require data to be stored for later, while a different subset of data is loaded in for the player to interact with. Old-school level-based games use these all the time, going from level-select menus to gameplay or level-to-level. -level. Any game with a pause menu or similar playstopper that needs to load in extra data will likely use some form of cut transition. On the other hand, the masked transition usually arises from a streamed method of data management, where data is constantly being loaded and unloaded during play based on whatever the player is doing. Games in the open world genre use this technique constantly, as they do what they can to ensure that the player's experience is as seamless as possible. The thing that differentiates these transitions from each other is the amount of attention the game draws to the fact that it is making the transition. Cut transitions tend to make it very well known to the player that data is loading or that something has happened that requires the player to wait a moment. Masked transitions do the opposite, attempting to keep the fact that the data is being loaded as imperceptible as possible. The example that comes to mind is Super Metroid in comparison to Metroid Prime when it comes to handling doors. In Super Metroid, when the player enters a door, play is explicitly stopped as the screen fades to black the door moves to the location where the player will be placed, and the new location is faded in for the player to play in. In this example, the player is essentially told to wait a moment as the next area is loaded in, and subsequently informed when they can begin play again. Contrast this with Metroid Prime, where when the player gets near enough to a door, the loading process for the area behind the door begins without the player's knowledge. In this case, the player is not asked to wait, and is not explicitly informed when the next area is ready for play. Instead, they are kept from entering the area before it is loaded, as the door will not open until loading is done. But that is more due to a data restriction, rather than a stylistic decision with regards to how the transition is presented. Now, there are different styles for both of these types of transitions. For cuts, you can see things like fades, usually to or from black, but not always, various types of swipes, loading screens, or even hard cuts, which are most commonly seen when opening a pause menu. 
Also, there can be a lot of artistry done with these types of cuts, such as fancy level presentation screens, see the colorful ones at the start of most 2D Sonic acts, or the aforementioned Super Mario Bros. stage start screen or the death screen of Castlevania Aria of Sorrow. Masked transitions, on the other hand, almost always involve unavoidable obstacles. That's our definition of obstacle, by the way, which can include things like doors or really long hallways. This is because you want to try to make things as subtle as possible. While you can remove control from the player, think a short auto-movement sequence, doing so repeatedly can easily destroy this carefully crafted illusion. Note that masked transitions often occur simultaneously with an artistic transition from one world region to another. This world region transition itself isn't masked, and may even be called out with region name text, but the technical side of the transition is masked, which is what matters for these sorts of technical transitions. So with all of that said, what do we need to keep in mind when attempting to make good transitions in games? Well, for one thing, establishing rules for what the transitions are associated with is key. What I mean by this is that when designing a transition that goes from one specific idea to another, for instance, stage to stage, the overall concept of that transition should remain consistent when applied to other similar ideas, but different from transitions that go to different ideas. For a theoretical example, let's say we took the Super Metroid transition that was mentioned earlier and applied it when the player went from gameplay to a pause menu. The player would be confused, as the cues of the transition have thus far been associated with entering a new zone. The fact that this same transition is now being used in two unrelated juxtapositions, or arrangements, of play space, causes confusion in the player and is likely to break their suspension of disbelief. Another really important thing to keep in mind with transitions, both technical and artistic, is what those transitions say about your game world. Masked transitions in particular can get in a lot of trouble here if thought isn't given to how the relationships between various regions of the game are being presented. Dark Souls 2 especially suffered from this, as many world regions don't connect in logical ways. Elevators are the primary culprit for this, with the most egregious example being the elevator from Earthen Peak to the Iron Keep. For those unfamiliar with it, it goes like this. Earthen Peak is a very tall tower. The elevator is at the top of it. The Iron Keep zone is basically a large castle in the caldera of a volcano with lava as far as the eye can see. This makes no sense, and fans and critics of the game have mocked it endlessly. There are other elevators that do the same sort of thing, and many other areas of the game world are similarly illogical, such as a cave harbor being connected to another zone in such a way that it should, by logic, be under the sea, or several branching paths that logically occupy the same physical space in the world. The developers have said that these area connections are supposed to be more abstract, and that things like the elevators are a symbol for traveling a vast distance, but they don't feel like that at all to the player. Compare this to the fade cuts in The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Cuts, by their very nature, have a more abstract connection, and therefore give the brain space to come up with relationships. Now, Ocarina of Time generally tries pretty hard to make its cuts have little abstraction between them, but consider the Lost Woods shortcuts. How do you get from the Lost Woods to Goron City or Azura's River? Both of those are nowhere near each other, and yet they are connected. Note also that these warps use a different style of cut transition. This helps abstract the link for the mind, and allows it to accept them. To witness an even more extreme example of this, look up a playthrough of Ocarina of Time Beta Quest. Beta Quest is a hack of Ocarina of Time that shuffles all of the zone transitions around. So, for example, leaving Link's house could end up with you entering Death Mountain Crater from the Goron City Passage, while entering Link's house puts you in the courtyard of Hyrule Castle. Entering these locations from each other in this way makes no logical sense, and at first your brain is like, wait, what is even happening? But after a while, it accepts it. This is possible because cut transitions allow room for the brain to concoct an explanation that makes it comfortable. From this, we come to one particular use of transitions that shows up a great deal in games, specifically the concept of the zonal transition. 
Consider, if you will, the first three games of the Sonic the Hedgehog series. When looking at how each game handles its transitions, we can see how important transition style is to conveying information about zones and the progression of story. In Sonic the Hedgehog, when you enter a stage, it receives a label on a black background which fades in. When you beat a level, Sonic runs off the right side of the screen, then the game fades out to black. You can see, then, that levels have a fade to black, get labeled, and fade in transition rhythm. Each level works this way. Now, levels are grouped into related visual styles called zones. For example, the first zone is called Green Hill Zone, and it is broken up into three stages called acts. All of these acts have a similar visual style, that of a green, hilly-feeling area. Contrast this with the next zone, Marble Zone, which has purple ground and orange lava. It is a very different place, but the transition from the third act of Green Hill Zone to the first act of Marble Zone is the exact same one as any other transition. Though note that the end of act transition is typically triggered by Sonic running past a signpost, with the exception being after defeating a boss, when Sonic pops a capsule before running off. These capsules mark the end of a zone, but aren't part of the transition itself. Rather, like the aforementioned signposts, they mark the start of the standard end-of-level transition used throughout the game. This makes progress of the game feel very linear. There aren't many changes here between Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 in the initial zones of the game, although there is one change that bears mentioning. For Sonic 2, the transitions from act to act still fade to black on completion, but behave slightly differently on the onset of any given act. Starting on a very brief black screen, colorful geometry that fills the screen with the zone name and act number are quickly swiped in, soon after being swiped away to reveal the play space. Artistically, this gives the game a bit of a cooler feel, using stylistic flourish to get the player ready for some fast action. It is also notable that in the final three stages of the game, extended cutscenes and masked cuts are used to demonstrate how Sonic gets from zone to zone. This said, the transitions before and after these scenes follow the same rules. However, Sonic 3, in addition to adding an opening cutscene to establish the story, also radically changes up the transitions. For one thing, the transitions between acts are no longer cuts, but are now masked. Act label information actually drops down over the stage while it is playable, and stages end with an artistic transition. The player loses control, and the traditional score information is displayed, but play resumes shortly thereafter, in the same location with the score information being replaced with the act label. Zone transitions are more elaborate cuts, with short cutscenes taking you from one zone to the next. These do a lot to add story to the game, as well as establish a sense of progression. When playing through the game, levels feel less like individual stages and more like one continuous journey thanks to these changes. So as you can see, how you handle zonal transitions can do a great deal to embellish the player's experience. They can grant more contextual information with regards to how zones are related to each other by the information that the transition implies through its little details. Yeah, it can be a lot of work to get these sorts of more elaborate transitions working the way you want them to, but they can do a lot to enhance an experience, especially if you want to make the levels that the player plays through feel more cohesive. Such transitions aren't for every game, but they do a lot for the games that want them. And with that, we've concluded what we have to say about transitions. Join us next time when we talk about the power of music in scenes and settings in games. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Until then, this is Cientier, signing off. And this is Redco, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyo.